How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we're welcoming the incredible Morgan Lorette. Morgan is a former Army intelligence officer and spent time in Iraq as a member of Blackwater, the military contracting unit. Uh, he's also the author of this incredible new book, Welcome to Blackwater, Mercenaries, Money, and Mayhem in Iraq. Uh, Morgan, great to have you on here. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a crazy last, uh, year and a half, two years, I think. Uh, but with everything going on and stuff kind of open it back up, how are you feeling physically, mentally? Are you excited for the uh, future here? Well, heck yeah. I mean, because if you're not excited for the future, what the heck are you, uh, what, what are you waiting for? Right, come on. hundred percent. So, so for those, that, f- yeah, for those that aren't aware uh, of your background, or I haven't picked up your book yet, which I highly recommend they do. Could you kind of give a background of how you first got interested in the military and then from the military to the Blackwater, like that kind of transition period there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in small town USA, Cottonwood, Arizona, the thriving metropolis that it was, you know. And then um, it was like every every summer I worked construction. I grew up with my grandparents and through high school and they were like, look, you're going to learn a trade. And I thought, man, those trades, they suck. They're hot. You're always outside. It's not really that, that amazing. So uh, when I graduated from high school, it was really like, what are you going to do with your life? Didn't have any money to pay for college. So I decided that I was just going to join the military. And my grandfather, he was an Army World War II vet, was like, well, join the Air Force because they have way better food. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So I enlisted. I was like the only E1 in the Air Force uh, basic training. Everybody else at least got like E2. Uh, and, and that's really, I just kind of like, just, it just kind of happened. I like literally within two months, it was like, let's, uh, let's get this thing done. One of the interesting things in your book is your humor is very, uh, it's, it's dark at some points. It's very sarcastic. It's witty, very, I would someone could be even consider brash, but it's refreshing. It's real. It's authentic. Is that something, the humor you always had growing up? Uh, or is that something as you've dealt with the horrors of war and your service in Iraq and then the transition to Blackwater and the stuff you guys saw, did the humor help act almost as a form of medication for you to kind of deal with some of the, the evil, really terrible things you've had to deal with? Yeah. I mean, I think I was always kind of sick in the head a little bit, so <laughs> I don't, I don't want to blame that on Iraq or the military. Um, my grandfather used to tell me a story where I was like literally digging a ditch when I was in, in preschool and some uh, ambulance drove by with its lights and sirens on. And he said, I peeked my head up over the ditch and said, well, somebody died. So like, I, I think I've always been a little bit off. And then uh, as you, as you like progress, uh, dark humor is really a great coping mechanism as you start going through these things yes. that you're just not really, I, I don't think that the human body is, is prepared for the psyche is not prepared for these things. So, so how do you cope? You can either sit there and you can mope around and, and act like a little bitch, 
or you can just, uh, you know, make a few jokes about it and then drive on and, and, you know, go see a therapist later or something. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. And it's, and I, I have the same type of humor. I think I gravitate. I used to be in the secret service and law enforcement. And so like, I get that idea of brotherhood, sisterhood with your family. You guys in the locker room could do your thing. Um, sports teams, you wrestled. Uh, so you get that whole, uh, I just find, I, I find humor necessary, even in the worst days, like I find that even the days where I kind of feel mentally or physically out of it, I need to laugh. And when I laugh or think about something stupid or say an offhand comment that probably I couldn't even repeat out of my own mouth, I'm kind of like, I feel better now. And so it's, it is really cool that your humor as an intro to your story really, really sets the mood. Cause you talk about do some crazy stuff in here. Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing makes you feel a little bit better about where you're at, uh, like a dick joke. And that's just all there is to it. Sometimes you just got to go through and, and make a dick joke. I, I tell people like Blackwater was almost like prison rules, right? Like you show up and the first person that talks to you is talking to you because they don't have any friends and you don't want to hang out with that guy, right? That's like prison. So what you got to do is you got to go into the yard. You got to find the biggest dude in the jail and you just got to suck his dick. So, um, <laughs> No, I, it, it really is just one of those things. Like it, it's, it's easier to laugh about stuff and, and it, it is cathartic. Like there's something about laughing where, where you, you go, okay, well, the world isn't really crumbling around me. Uh, let, let me move forward because you don't really have a whole lot of a choice anyway. As you do your time in 2004, 2005, and then you go get your degree, um, in that time period there, was this something where you're kind of, once you get the degree and then you're like, you still miss the idea of service or the combat? Like, how did you kind of decide to get the degree and be like, you know what, I'm going to go back in 2009, 2010? Yeah, well, um, really, if, if you if you look at it pragmatically, I, I wish I had this like big thought process and I right. mapped out my life. But at the end of the day, like Blackwater fell in my lap. Uh, once I got done with Blackwater, it was 2006. The housing bust was getting ready to, to just absolutely decimate the economy. Uh, I was going to college for something really, really important called criminal justice. And, uh, you yes. know, what you can do with that is you can go become a cop. And I was like, I don't want to become a cop. Uh, and, and I had flown in enough helicopters that I went into the Army ROTC and was like, you guys own the helicopters. Like, I think that'd be a cool job. And they were like, okay, sign on the dotted line. I mean, they were taking any mouth breather, myself included in the ROTC at that point. Um, so I, I joined the ROTC to, to go do another cool job. And then they said, hey, uh, that cool job is going to last like six and a half years. And I said, I don't want a cool job that bad. So I went back in as an Army Intel officer. Um, and, and in hindsight, it was a great thing for my career because having been enlisted, you go in as an officer, you have different types of responsibilities. They train you differently. You have to lead people from day one. And, and it helped me in my professional career a heck of a lot more than I think anything else did. What you, the, the, one of the big central themes in your book is teamwork and the importance of when I just from talking to my friends who served and all that, the teamwork aspect, the military branches, no matter what branch you're in, appears to be a lot different than what you had to deal with. And obviously, if you read the book as a contractor through Blackwater, it seemed like there's a lot more individualism and you just got to find your your guys or whoever and just do your thing. Um, 
Is that something you missed in Blackwater, the aspect of the actual team team where everyone falls in line and structure and uh, like the actual, you talk about the lack of oversight in Blackwater. Is that type of structure something you actually missed that could have maybe helped you maybe love Blackwater even more? Yeah, you know what? Blackwater was all big boy rules, which was absolutely spectacular. So you go into the military and you're trained to the lowest common denominator, right? And then you have your, your team of people and it's like, all right, well, nobody can actually get fired in the military. And they're like, you know, the army's always telling people, oh, check on your buddy, you know, make sure he's got water and, and make sure that he's got ammunition. And Blackwater was the opposite. It was like, look, it's big boy rules. It's Baghdad. It's August. If you don't bring water, you're an idiot. Like, I'll give you some water one time, but if you don't bring water the second time, you're kind of an idiot. So it really brought out that individualism in me um, in, in, in really competitive nature uh, just because you have so many alpha males. So as I transitioned out of Blackwater, I figured out how to focus that, that, like, that need for competition. And I remember I was sitting in a uh, criminal justice class and I looked over and this girl got like a 95 on her test and I got a 93 and I was like pissed. I was just livid. I was like, nobody's going to get better grades than me. In the Army ROTC, nobody's going to out-PT me. Nobody's going to anything better than me because by God, like that's what's been driven into me for the last 18 months. And, and for that, like I'm eternally thankful for the people I worked with at Blackwater uh, that probably didn't even mean to, but they, they drilled that into me day after day. One of the things... I've always been curious about, so with the VA, like I am curious about your reactions with the VA through the actual military aspect. Um, maybe it's a kind of a two-part question. Your, your feelings towards the VA, how they helped you specifically and what could be done does some of the stuff and the, some of the stories I hear from people at the VA, they don't like it. They just give you medication. They don't really help you or assist you to kind of transition in civilian life with that is when you get hurt or something that happens with Blackwater, how do you go to the VA? Are you able to still go to the VA and be like, hey, uh, I have PTSD, which obviously you could, but could they be like, well, you got this when you went back in Blackwater? Like, where do you draw the line between those guys that, like yourself, that do the military aspect and then you do Blackwater? Is there like a church, something different for them? Or since you guys have already served, you still fall under the VA type of stuff like that? So you do still fall under the VA um, and it's, it's a really fuzzy gray line because um, there, there, is, there is no support system for private security okay. contractors. There's just none. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, that's more difficult because at least as sucky as the VA is and as big a pain in the ass it is to go down there, um, at least you had something to fall back on. For the contractors that were not prior service, hadn't served overseas, um, they don't have anything to fall back on. And I've, it's, it's exceptionally difficult because you can't like go be around people that kind of understand you at the VA as right. opposed to if you're a contractor, it's like, oh, hey, I can go talk to somebody that understands me. My buddy Morgan, he's out in, L in uh, Arizona. Uh, like you can't just like pop in on somebody's door and say, oh, remember that, that crap we did as contractors. So, so it is a big, it's a chasm that you fall into when you're a, a security contractor. Um, but thankfully, most security contractors were prior service, were right. already deployed, had already done some of that stuff. So, so it's, it's kind of a chicken or the egg, right? Did, did it happen before? Did it happen after? Did it happen because of all of it? it who knows? And, and the VA has been, has been very good 
uh, especially with like benefits, uh, education gotcha. benefits, um, medical stuff. So it's, it's, it's just, it's hard to navigate. And the best way to navigate it is go in and shut your mouth and don't tell them how you were a contractor. Right. One of the things that's very interesting to me is the idea that, and again, you do touch upon this where people that are in the military are transitioning out. They don't know what they're going to do. And maybe they are really good at combat. They like this, this rush of not only the service, but you're, you are there to serve a purpose. And that is to whatever that purpose is. But do you feel there's enough programs out there or assistance for veterans that maybe they don't want to go back, but they're scared that they can't get a job? And you touch home that there are people back in the early 2000s where civilian people didn't really want these military guys and girls. They weren't hiring them. And that was a big, obviously I get why there's a big push for it. There should be because leadership, you can't teach that in a book. And you, do you think there's more enough programs out there right now where, Hey, you might have called that, but are you going there for the right reasons? Are you going there to keep training and keep all this? Or are you going there because you're afraid you can't get a job or take care of in the civilian world? Yeah, I, it's, it's natural for uh, prior service people to fall back on what they're comfortable with, right? So you go straight from right. high school, straight to college, and then you get out and a lot of them will say, well, I'm going to join the National Guard and I'm going to join the reserves or something. So I can kind of have one foot in the door, one foot out of the door, and that's fine. Um, but there are, a, there are thousands of programs out there. And, and this is kind of the problem is that there's probably a program out there to help you uh, in, or any veteran, and you have to actually find it. And a lot of GIs just get frustrated. It's like dealing with the VA. Uh, by the time you go through the whole process, like it takes time. It's frustrating. You're going to be pissed off, but there's, there's great programs. There's a program called American Corporate Partners where they'll get you a mentor in um, corporate America. There's Team Red, White, and Blue. There's uh, The Mission Continues. I mean, there's so many nonprofits that can help you. And this is what I tell people is, is if you're a, a veteran, ask for help. Like you have to ask. I know that it's been you know nailed into you. Just go figure it out. Fido, right? Fuck it, drive on. Um, no, ask. Right. It's not a big deal. And if you're a civilian and you want to help veterans, don't, don't let them just say, like, take no for an answer. Oh, hey, send me your resume. I'll try to help you. Oh, no, I'm fine. No, God damn it. Send me your resume. Like, let's go grab a cup of coffee. Let me figure out. Right. Let's talk. Let's know. talk about. Right. Exactly. If the veteran doesn't what know what they do- need, you could still help. And uh, so my, the security company I'm part of, Silver Spirit Security, we, we're on the, we work with the Department of Defense and we're, we take GI bills. We help uh, guys and girls transition into the civilian world with security, with training and all that. And you just hit the perfect nail on the head. There are programs out there. The problem is there's no one there to help direct these people to the right programs. And you go to some of these websites where there's literally 50, 60 pages of just all bullshit and no structure. And, and then we get some of these, the guys and girls that do make it that far. They're like, oh, thank God you responded to an email or thank God you picked up the phone. And I'm like, well, we, we're here for a service, but tell us about your, tell us what your problem is. It's just some of these companies will just be like, yeah, give me a resume. Oh, you served here. You don't have enough on your resume. And then I looked at the resume and it's no fault to the, to the military people. But when they put uh, served in combat, a civilian is looking at that going, Oh, they're not, they're not leaders. They're not managers. Can they do Excel? It's like these guys did inventory. They took the radio skills, leadership, all this stuff that falls under civilians just aren't 
most civilians aren't smart enough to realize that these veterans actually serve a huge purpose. And it's kind of cool to, to hear you kind of like do what you can too uh, for these uh, veterans. Yeah. I mean, look, if you don't know where to look, find me on Instagram and shoot me a message because I'll, I, you know, you're going to have to swallow your advice or swallow your pride and take some advice. Uh, the last thing I ever wanted to do was go to college. And the only reason I went is because I had the GI bill and because I didn't know what the hell else I was going to do. And then from there, it just kind of kept snowballing and, and, and things you do now pay off 10 years in the future. And I got, I got friends that are, they're all retiring now, right? I got it in 99. So they got it in 2000, they're retiring and I'm jealous of them. I'm infinitely jealous. They get a paycheck all the time. Um, but I, I'm just straight up with them. I, they'll give me the resume and I'll say, look, all this stuff that says like NCOIC and, and OBGYN, look, dude, unless right. you were actually looking at girls twats, you weren't an OGBYN or whatever the hell that is. Right. I, don't, I haven't been in the stirrups yet. Um, so, so you got to get rid of all that military stuff and you need to sit down and you need to talk to people. Like you were not an NCOIC for an ordinance company. You were a logistics manager for right. a 300 person, like, you know, unit, like you, you have to translate that. And I think GIs get frustrated and they, they're like, ah, oh, they should know. No, they shouldn't know. That's like me going literally to the OB, OGBYN and being like, Hey, that pussy doesn't look right. No, I don't know. I haven't been trained. Right. Very. <laughs> one of the, I had a guest on a couple of weeks, months ago, uh, Dr. Jason Piccolo and the theme for that show, uh, he was a combat veteran, but we talked about burn pits and their effect and the Hunter seven foundation. And it, it wasn't until after that pot, that, that episode where I'm kind of like, not only do you have like the, you have to deal with the insurgents and the bad guys over there. Uh, but there's other stuff too, the, the medical waste and the burn pits. So stuff like that, how were your dealings with that over there? And have you known anyone that was kind of affected by those burn pits um, and stuff like that, that where outside the gunfire, the grenades, like you are, there are other issues out there. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of funny. Cause so I went in during the ground offensive and that's exactly what we did is we, we dug a big hole. Yeah. We took all of our mop gear because we, you know, Saddam had been toppled. We threw it in there. We poured a bunch of JP eight on it and then we lit it on fire and then we all stood around and, and didn't think twice about it. Right. Uh, and then there's a massive burn pit in Baghdad when I was there, 0405, and still probably in 9 and 10. Um, and the reason you know it's there is because when the Blackhawks would fly over it, they would shoot out their flares because for some reason it, it knocked out their, it hit, hit their sensors that they were, there was like an incoming fire. Uh, so it was massive. And they always would shoot off flares. And I, dude, I thought I was going down when the helicopter, the first helicopter ride, I was like, oh, I'm going down. No, dude, it's that goddamn burn pit. Um, so, so yeah, I, I mean, everybody kind of had to go in there and, and, and soak in their, their hydrocarbons. And I was up in Kirkuk right next to the Northern oil company and they don't oh. save the natural gas. They burn it off. So you're literally just sitting there like, like choking down all these nasty fumes from, from the oil company. Um, me for luckily for me, like I, it, it doesn't seem like it's affected me, but you never know if it's going to affect you in one year, 20 years, five years. It's so so I'm, I'm glad that the burn pit stuff is actually getting focus put on it. Uh, John right. Stewart started like focusing yes. on it, uh, which is awesome because there, there are a ton of environmental hazards over there. And even, even like, you know, you're sitting there with all your spent ammunition and your lead and stuff like that. Yep. That's probably not that great for you. 
well, even the medical supplies and the uniforms, like all this stuff where it's like even the human waste, like it's, it just kind of blew my mind that not only do you have to deal with what you're protecting and you're in a firefights every night, but the actual, the, 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 the crazy health and the environmental stuff too. Yeah, I, well, so in, in, it's in the book, but I talk about how you're only supposed to shake with your right hand because your left hand's considered yes. unclean. And that's because, and I had no idea about this. And I think most people don't is like they pour water into their hand with like those little flower pot waterers and they throw it up and down their butthole. Right. And then, and then like, dude, I don't care how much you wash your hands after that. You still have, you still have butt all over your hands. And those are the people that we are hiring to cook our food to clean our stuff. I mean, in, in the Iraqis, their toilets are in the ground. So they would go into the porta potty and they would stand on top of our toilet seats and just spray mud all over the, all over the back of the, the porta potties. And it's like, dude, th- like this is, I didn't even know that this existed in real life. Like I thought these were all jokes that you saw. Horror on, like, movie. Saturday You're right. Yeah. Jackass. <laughs> Yeah, so we we used to we used to just like make bets when we'd have the Iraqis come onto the base and we'd feed them and be like, all right, well, let's see who's gonna spray the spray the back of the portage on the highest. Which one do you think it's gonna be? Oh, it's that fat guy. It's the fat Iraqi. He's gonna do it. One of the other interesting parts of this book, uh, you talk about you share pictures. You adopted a dog, but your interactions with the kids and the locals. How important was that for you guys? Uh, that to kind of build that relationship, like, was there direction from your leadership or where you're kind of like, Hey, like, how do you like that whole idea of how do you trust people there? And the people you do, do talk to trust, they're actually uh, probably are amazing people, but how do you kind of slowly build that trust with the locals who, who, who don't might not understand why you're there? Um, I mean, the, the simple answer is you don't. And that's why you like the dogs and you like the kids because they're innocent, right? Like, like they're not the ones that are pissed off. I remember, uh, when I got there in 04 with Blackwater, uh, we were driving down one of the streets and like somebody was waiting, like a little kid was waving at me. Right. And I was like, Oh, you know, like they, they think we're here and, and we're doing good things. And then literally within like three or four months, we're driving down probably the same street or something similar. And this kid is going like this, like he's shooting at us. And I'm like, Oh man, like, like I'm, I think, I think the tables are turning on us. Um, so that's when, that's when you start like adopting dogs and stuff and, and you're not supposed to, uh, because you know, right. the dogs have fleas and vermin and all yes. that other stuff. But at the end of the day, like there's a reason why there's service animals for veterans with PTSD. And it's because a dog doesn't give a crap if you've had a good day or a bad day, it needs love and it's going to love you unconditionally. Uh, the cat that I adopted, Mr. Mittens, uh, that turned yeah. out to be a girl because because I didn't pick it up and look for balls or anything. Um, like it, it just it, it it's just like unconditional care that they give you and you can give them. And the kids are the same right. way for the most part, right? Like they're happy to see you. They want to be in pictures. I got a hundred pictures of kids. And they're all gathered right. around us. You know, I picking one up. Um, they're they're just they're too innocent for this war crap, man. And and that's what sucks. And they get caught in the crossfire, and they have their media. Italian one thing like army so it's, I, I totally do understand that for you the military aspect obviously has a different ethical obligation and a standard of conduct of whatever uh conduct standards for their service members but in the Blackwater is was there what was the biggest takeaways from like your obligation change or were you allowed to do uh 
different stuff that the military couldn't do if if you guess if you get my question here yeah no absolutely so um uh, the military is under the geneva convention they also have rules of engagement right um and and with blackwater when i got over there in 04 it was really just a mission driven company and the mission was here's a diplomat he needs to go over there figure out how to get him over there and don't let your convoy stop like because that's that's when everybody gets into trouble so um we definitely did not have the same rules of engagement and and it, it just all depends it's it's so dependent and and you look at when you're driving around with a congressman how are you going to react when you're driving around with a congressman versus you're driving around in a convoy to go from point A to point B because you need to, I don't know, give toilets to the Iraqi police station that are going to be stolen. Um, so the cargo matters, right? Like when you have right. a congressman, you have the ambassador to Iraq, um, you're just going to act differently because that person is so freaking important um, that you're, you're not going to take nearly as many chances. You're not going to give people the benefit of the doubt. One of the interesting things, the interaction you have with those, now refer to yourself back when you're in Blackwater, your interaction with armed service members and other military contractor companies uh, and other entities, whether it's Department of State or anyone that works in these embassies, how I imagine that ego plays a huge role in people kind of puffing their chest and, hey, this is, we're doing this, we're doing that. But could you kind of touch upon that type of dynamic there in terms of the working relationship and structure uh, when it comes to all these different entities kind of working in the same, the same area? Yeah. It, I mean, it, it is a, it was a quagmire and I'm sure it still is. Uh, so, so it was a junior enlisted guy during the ground offensive. It was literally like, here's your M16, there's your runway, go stare at it for a long time. Right. <clears throat> so, so there was no, you couldn't look behind the curtain to see the politics behind it. When you work for Blackwater, you're sitting there in these different meetings and, and the Iraqis are trying to get the Americans to say, oh yes, we screwed up coming and in invading uh, so that they could use that as a talking point to be able to say, no, we should have more, um, more Kurds in the government than Sunnis, than Shias, you name it. So, so it really kind of peeled back that layer of, of the politics of war for me. And the hardest part is that Everybody wants to take credit for winning the war and nobody wants to take credit for like, you know, the abysmal failure that it, it ultimately became. So you have all these different agencies trying to fight a war from the comfort of their palace with contractors that don't have the same rules of engagement, that don't have the same military support with military members. And, and they all want to have their peace and they don't communicate very well. So I was talking to somebody the other day and it was like, they're like, well, you could just call in big army if something happened. No, you couldn't. They didn't know where right. we were. They had right. no idea where we were. We didn't even have a line of communication from our vehicles to big army. We had to call our people and say, hey, can you call big army? Like the poop really just hit the fan. Hopefully they'll now, be able to Now, do you think that is part of the reason why Blackwater ultimately uh, lost its luster because that structure wasn't there? Like you would think going to a mission that you'd want every entity here where it's like, hey, God forbid, here's the chain of command for this issue here. If you have this issue, why not make it where everyone can be successful? It seems like, like you said, everyone got like this thing to, we're, we're going to win the war, not the other guys, but we'll use them. If, it just seems super, like, why not help each other out? So there's, there's two things. And the biggest one is you have to go back to the technology of 2004. Yeah, right? true. Like yeah. you just, 
they gave us little handheld Garmin GPSs that didn't have maps on them and said, drive around Baghdad. And then hopefully that'll help us map all the different roads. Like there was no Google earth. There was no iPhone. Like your Google earth. Yeah. Yeah, Like, like, like there was none of that stuff. Right. So, so having that communication was difficult. There was no blue force tracker. And what those do is essentially it says, Hey, this guy's in your AO. They have, you know, please don't shoot at them. This guy's over here on this road. We didn't have any of that. So it was just like drive around. If you see Suburbans, please don't shoot at us. Uh, if we see Humvees, uh, we'll, we, we'll try not to shoot at you. There was a lot of blue on blue um, interactions, I'll call them, that, that really pissed off the military members because you're operating in, in what they think is their own environment, their actual like, this is mine. What are you doing? Right. It? It's like, dude, I'm just doing the job that the Department of State is doing. Like, so, so technology was one thing. And the other thing was, is, is that there's, there's so much ego in wanting to say, oh, I'm building up this part or I'm doing this part. And like, you could almost see the DOD and the Department of State, like kind of arguing back and forth. Like, this is a diplomatic mission. No, this is still a war zone. And it's like, well, it's both. And we suck right. at both of them. So let's just, let's right. just chill, you know? One of our followers, Kim, she was a service member and her, one of her, her question uh, was basically, you kind of answered it, but when it comes to the military contractor and the, uh, the enlisted, whoever their actual military guys or girls, uh, was there ever like the competition and like the, was it any type of jealousy in the sense where, I could see where guys that just got in the military, their station there would see you guys at the palaces or the hotels or, Oh, they got hot showers. They got a roof on their head. We're in a bunker or an old cave and that type of stuff there. How do you deal with that yourself? Cause you've obviously did the military aspect here. You are in Blackwater. So you understand both sides of it, but there must be people that, that went one or the other, never did the other one. And it was kind of like, man, yeah. I don't, these guys are assholes. Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, no, no, and 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 we were, uh, we were the guys at the at the pool chugging beers and and you know being right. super loud, right? Like I, if if I was a military guy, I'd be like, who are those assholes, right? Um, right. And, and Shut the was, fuck up, right? Yeah, exactly. Like like you guys are walking around with a Bud Light, not a Bud Light, but like a Corona in one hand, and you got your pistol strapped on you. Like like what the hell is right. going on here? So um, totally understand both sides of it. And at the end of the day, it was like, look, I left that life to have this life. And this life is better. And you know what? I don't, I don't really care if you like it or not. And that was my mentality at Blackwater. And then I went back to Iraq in 09 and 10. And you're seeing these contractors. And I was like, God dang, I remember doing that. And yes, I hate them for it. I just do. <laughs> like, I, I hate the fact that like, you guys are rolling around with a lot more autonomy than I am. I hate the fact that you guys can kind of do what you want and you guys have better living quarters and internet and all of your shoes. Like, yeah, I dislike that. I hate the fact that you're in my AO wrecking stuff while I'm trying to, you know, grab intelligence. Um, so, so there's, there's jealousy, but I think most of us realized we were just kind of doing the same thing. We were just at different, you know, different levels of what we were right. doing. And it, it's the same kind of thing that you see in the special operations community versus your, like your leg unit, right? Like, yeah. yeah, hey, I'm in the Rangers. Well, that's cooler than being infantry. Well, I'm in special forces and that's cooler than being a Ranger. And everybody's like, my dick's the biggest. And right. for us, we were like, our dick is, is definitely the biggest. It's, it, is, it is a big juicy beast, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the just super crazy 
and the you actually share pictures of the palaces and obviously you've been privy and seed stuff i'm sure there's a lot of pictures you can't share but when you look back now is it kind of mind-blowing that you were not only part of history but a part inside and some of these palaces where actual horrors happened and terrible things but like i remember growing up watching up watching like uh the golf, the golf war on TV every night, and Tom Brokaw and all these guys. That's why I really started falling to the media of just man, this is this is crazy, the sensationalism of war. But you've you've got to be in these palaces and you see these places and slept in some of these places where actual world leaders, all this stuff happened. Do you ever kind of step back and be kind of like, man, this is it's kind of cool. I mean, totally dangerous and not for everyone, but I, I did this. Yeah, no, I. I everybody thinks that they like they have a normal existence right like i grew up right. in small town usa and then i joined the air force and then you know just by luck i was in the ground offensive and that's our base is where they brought in people to uh, rescue jessica lynch right so yeah. and i didn't have any idea about that because it's not like we had tvs during the ground offensive and then i go work for blackwater and it's like oh i i was part of the um the people that protected the guys that collected evidence against Saddam Hussein and chemical Ali for the, the, um, and onfall campaign up in Northern Iraq. And, and I look back and it's like, dude, like, like I literally had breakfast with the president of Iraq and that's not a normal thing, but it wasn't abnormal at the time. And, and, and that's the really odd thing. And, and, and that's kind of part of the reason why I wrote the book is like, I don't think, I don't think this will ever happen again. I don't think you can have PMCs that can come in and have very limited oversight. Like we started the war and it got so big so fast that we were always chasing our tails. And, and it, it's a two to three year window of like, holy crap. Like, oh, you were there. You know, people are like, oh, you're Blackwater OG. You were there in 04. And, oh, you know, and it's like, dude, I mean, I guess. But at the end of the day, I was just a dumb 23 year old. It was like cool adventure, cool money cool stories. All right. Now I got to live the rest of my life. Right. So say you're in a bar, you're whatever, your restaurant, someone you're doing a book signing and a kid that's 22, 23 comes up to you, man, I really want to be a military contractor, uh, Blackwater, whatever it is. What are you telling that, that person? Are you giving them the full honesty? Obviously they're reading the book. They know what, what, what the book's about, but for someone that maybe is chasing that money, which has obviously changed, uh, but the ones that thinks they want this life, how much truth are you giving them when they oh, ask I, questions? I look, you, you, you better, you better be ready to, uh, to, to eat some humble pie. Cause the first thing I'm going to tell you is you don't. Um, right. And there's so many contractors that did great with themselves afterwards. And then there's just as many that, you know, had IRS debt and, you know, you, you know, you lose a wife, you lose your family over it. Um, it's, it's a hard life. And, and what I tell people is, if you want to be a PMC, go get your engineering degree, because you can become an engineer and I can train you to become a PMC. But I can't become an engineer. And that gives you a little bit of latitude, right? Because there's right. nothing worse than coming home like I did in, in early 06 and saying, oh, shit, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I guess I better get a criminal justice degree, right? Like, like always have a backup plan. It, you kind of you just did touch upon it, but would you people a lot of times will chase happiness. I think every man, woman, whoever it is, deserves to be happy. But when it comes to money, 
And when, when you first started, I mean, these guys, were, you guys were clear 200K a year. And so, I mean, that's just what we know. <laughs> and the aspect of chasing money to maybe buy happiness, when that rug gets pulled out of you, like you said, you better have a backup plan because you're going to be scrambling and you can't do what you're doing here at the local place you're working back home in the United States. And so it, it is very, very fascinating that you were able to kind of do the military, Blackwater, get your degree, do your stuff there, but you actually had a solid game plan in place. Is that something that you weren't necessarily chasing the money, but you, you did what you wanted to do, but you knew this wasn't going to last forever? Yeah, I, I knew subconsciously, I knew it wasn't going to last forever anyway. And then what, it, what really drove it home for me was, um, and I mentioned it in the book, uh, there was a guy in Kirkuk and he was 20 year retired uh, special forces dude and been married for 20 plus years and he's like yeah i'm getting divorced and i was like huh he's like well she's gonna take half my pension anyway so i'm just gonna keep staying over here and i was like you're God. throwing away a lifelong and, and i i don't know the background of it right maybe they right, weren't happy right, for right. a long time but at the end of the day like it sounded like you're throwing away 20 something years of this relationship for the cash and look the cash is never gonna make you that happy and i'm not right. one of those guys that's like oh money doesn't buy happiness. It goddamn does. It, it buys, it buys convenience. Like somebody can mow your lawn. So you don't have to totally get the money aspect of it, Right. but you have to have a plan and a goal. So when people say I am going to go PMC, I say, use it to get something. Maybe I'm going to pay off my house. Maybe I'm going to pay for college. Maybe stay over there for eight months because I was going to do a six month contract and then, you know, maybe I'd go back. And then the next thing I know, I did a three month contract and uh, maybe I'll go back. And then I did another six months and uh, maybe I'll go like, like if you don't have a plan in place, you're just going to get into that cycle. And it's honestly like no responsibilities, right? All you have to do is wake up, eat food, go work out, go do a couple of runs, rinse and repeat the combat mullet, right? Party, party in the party in the back and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Business in the front party in the back. Right. And, and it, there's something intoxicating. I think that's why people live in New York city is because then go get wasted and the train will take them home. Like it's great. Yep. So there's not a lot of books out there like yours about Blackwater. Um, that's, that's this is honest and, and important is what you put out here. Cause it paints a really uh, great picture of it for those that just want to jump in and learn kind of what this lifestyle is in the now, but when it came time to put the book together, um, was there any fear on your end that like, well, what's the process where obviously you can't mention specific locations per se, but like for people that want to write books like this, like, or people that read books like this, what kind of do they need to know when it's kind of like, Hey, what's the process for you to put this book out before it gets published in terms of uh, safety? Obviously you do a great thing where you block out people's eyes and faces uh, for a privacy, but anything like that, that goes into a book like this. So I started off just writing stories, uh, because I thought they were funny. Right. So kind of like, kind of like Tucker Max's, I hope they serve beer in hell is, is where yes. I started with it. And then, um, got with the publisher, the publisher really helped me like turn it into an actual narrative that went through and, and take that underlining stuff. Like, yeah, war leaves a bunch of scars and ultimately it's probably not worth it. Um, but what I, what I consciously tried to do was keep it as bland as possible. So take the people that first off, if you're going to mention somebody, 
ask for their permission. And if you're right. not going to ask for their permission, I split characters, I combined characters, I changed locations, I changed MOSs, I tried to make it as difficult as possible for anybody to identify anybody in the book that wasn't me. Right. And I did okay with that because I had a buddy go, oh my God, is this me? And I was like, dude, you're in this book like 17 times. Like, like, and he's yeah. like, oh man, I didn't even notice. Um, and then <laughs> just get ready for backlash. So I thought the Blackwater guys would be like, dude, you got our story out. It's funny. Like you, you nailed what the deployment was like. And then people are like, oh, you call this mercenaries and oh, you're an asshole. And, and, and you're not going to be able to appease everybody. So just get ready. So I've had, you know, everybody, depending on your political bent, some people are like, oh, you guys are all war criminals. And, and right. somehow I've been called a racist over it. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't get that part, but Hey, like, good for you. Right. And then on the opposite side, it's like, you shouldn't be talking about this silent professionals. And it's like, I wrote the book about the people on the ground and it's not right. a, it's not a like hero worship Blackwater book. And it's not, uh, it, it's, it's not, you, you bring a human aspect to something yeah. that I think a lot of people don't realize that they're, these are humans in these positions, living and dying and doing what they do. And I, I just thought it was very like, you, you it's it's not like a lot of these military books you read can be somewhat intimidating because it's like oh blah 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 oh just <laughs> zero six hundred hours like no one cares yeah. but the way you write it this is for anyone to pick up this book and just be like okay I get it like these yeah. aren't gods these are gods they're, they're faulty they're they make mistakes just like anyone else in any other in any other occupation uh, but this is what guy's story and how it was affected by it yeah well in in probably some of the smartest guys I ever worked with in my life. And I went to Tufts university and there's some smart people there. These guys I worked with the Blackwater were smarter than by far. And then um, the funniest guys on the planet too. So when I talk about the rocket going in and hitting the team tent, uh, the part I didn't put in there is literally like the rocket hits the team tent. And I look over and this guy goes, fuck, there goes our internet. And I, that was the first thing that went through his head. And everybody's like, okay, now we better go over there and see if anybody's dead. Um, but like, like, it's just the funniest stuff and it's morbid. And if you laugh at it, you're just as sick as I am, but yep. like, that's how you cope, right? Like you, you can't yep. sit there and be like, Oh my God, I hope that didn't hurt. What's his name. It's like, okay, well let's make a joke while we're jogging over there because what we're going to see might be pretty terrible. Well, it, but here's the thing too, though, as you have this humor, however you react to it, you still have to go in there and do the mission and you have to accomplish what you can and do what you do. Uh, so the humor, I think is just for me. I love it because it's super, it just makes it really engaging. The way you write the book is just, just very funny, but the, the, the publisher uh, the, for this book, Armour Press, they were, they're a veteran nonprofit, correct? They are. So yeah. How did they kind of, how did you get kind of get connected with them to put this out? Um, so I had reached out to some different publishers and agents and, and nobody wanted to touch Blackwater with a 10 foot pole. Uh, right. Cause it was like, that's too much controversy. Uh, so I reached out to them. They, they kind of saw that there was, there was something there that they'd be able to work with and um, it ultimately made it a heck of a lot of better book than it was. Right. It was, it was a bunch of chunks and stories. I think it was like 97 chapters cause there was 97 separate stories. Um, so, so they helped me along with that profit, that process, but on the flip side of that, like we've been having some problems because they are a little nonprofit. Um, we, it, it, it's not utopia, right? Like, Hey, I asked them, can you pay me for the books you're selling on Amazon? And they say, uh, go screw yourself. Uh, so I, I, it's, it's, 
I think it's just a crapshoot. Nobody gets rich off of, of writing books. So if you're going to write a book, one, be ready for the, the pushback. And two, uh, make sure you have that day job. Go get that engineering degree first. <laughs> now, how are you doing it? How are you kind of pushing out the book? I mean, obviously your social media, you're very interactive with your followers, which is amazing. Uh, but in terms of, do you like, do you like book signings or do you have other uh, military groups or other nonprofits? Hey, can you come speak to our people about uh, uh, transitioning into civilian life and stuff like that? Like, how do you kind of envision yourself making this something that a lot of people pick up and read? Uh, I mean, I am open to suggestions because I've been shaking my tits on TikTok for like six months. Uh, and, and TikTok's actually spectacular. Uh, it, I've sold more books on that than anything else, which is Imagine shocking. Imagine TikTok back in 2004, 2005 when you guys were in these palaces. Like this, the pictures you share of the gallows with Saddam Hussein, like stuff like that where it's like, Imagine you TikTok and all that. Oh, yeah. Like it would have been, you would have. People have been dancing naked on the gallows. I mean, they would have been doing it. <laughs> super, super interesting. So before I let you go, obviously you are on social media, but where can people find you on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, your website? I was able to, you can find the book on Amazon, uh, but you can go through yourself to get it. Uh, but just kind of tell people where and how they can find you. Yeah. So um, first off, if I can help anybody, let me know. Um, always, always willing to entertain questions. And there's a bunch of stuff on TikTok and it's all welcome to Blackwater. So TikTok, Instagram, um, those are kind of the two primary ones. My, my website is just welcome to blackwater.com. So you just mush all that stuff together, put a .com at the end. Uh, you can check out the book there. And it really, I think what it comes down to is I'm, I'm not going to get rich off of this thing, but if I can help some people either move them towards being a PMC or away from it or help you transition as a veteran, more than willing to, to, to help out wherever I possibly can. And if you go on TikTok, you can see me shake my ass. Oh man. Oh, so much junk in that trunk. Mm. Now, and I think your honesty is what's going to sell that, that's that quote unquote sell the book, but because you are so honest about your your good days, your bad days. I think that's what makes this book uh, super fascinating. Uh, actually, I just had another question though. When you watch like TV shows or movies and stuff, what do you think is the best movie out there, TV show or whatever media thing that really showcases what Blackwater really is? Or Because there's not a lot of stuff out there in terms of, like I know the Benghazi movie, 13 Hours with the, the contractors and the Department of State, but there's not a lot of, why is that? Is that what you said before earlier? Like no one wants to touch Blackwater. No one wants to make any one of these guys look good or like, what's the deal with that? Yeah, I, I, I think that's part of it. It's also just such a small community. Um, and, and there hasn't been a lot of literature on it. And the reason I wrote the book is I got tired of hearing how I am either a war criminal by Jeremy Skakehill's book or Eric Prince's book is like, oh my God, we were all warriors and we saved Iraq. And I wanted to really tell that human story. So if you want to watch something that I think is as accurate as it, as it can be, it's probably Generation Kill. They had that book yeah, as well yep. as the, the miniseries. Yep. Um, that kind of shows the, mun, you know, the, the mundane parts, the day-to-day -day stuff, as right. well as like the holy crap. Uh, but, but there really isn't anything out there yet. And, and I would love to, to be able to explore that more because it's, it's just such an interesting part of history. And, and it's going to get lost if, if somebody doesn't do something with it. Well, you could definitely do it where it's almost like a dark comedy because your humor, I think, would transition really well onto a TV show <laughs> because like you do have to deal with this, the atrocities of war and combat. But 
hey man if you can laugh a little bit i think that's gonna save some more lives than you think no absolutely so uh morgan this is awesome thank you for uh jumping on here and uh we'll be sure to uh do this again absolutely anytime thanks for having me thanks morgan thank you all for checking out this week's episode once again i'm john if you liked what you heard and saw today subscribe to our youtube channel find us on instagram facebook and twitter and check out our brand new merch store with hats coffee mugs t-shirts other cool stuff coming down the pipeline again thank you all for support be safe and see you next week Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.